Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the It's All Sport podcast and our first season communities. Previously, in our last episode, we brought you Jack Reynolds, CEO and co-founder of Football Beyond Borders, the organization that uses the power of the sports, of psychology and education to help underprivileged kids in the UK. Today, we're joined by our dear friend Arne, who'll be participating with us in the podcast sessions, and we'll be discussing a very important and modern topic which Arne will tell us all about. Yeah, that's right. Thank you, Alex, for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure um, being here. And as Alex mentioned, uh, in our last episode, we mostly spoke about the power of community and community building. Today, we're going to turn our heads towards um, an equally important contemporary and societal issue, which is inclusion and also, in some extent, exclusion. And we are joined by uh, a member of the LGBTQ plus community who has kindly offered to come to our podcast to um, discuss the experiences and some of the issues that LGBTQ community is facing when it comes to competitive sports. So today's guest is Giulia Valentino. She is a transgender woman from Italy who has moved to Ireland and entered Irish culture through Gaelic football in which she plays every weekend in an amateur club competitively and where she's made many, many friends. Julia has already featured in a previous article in the magazine, which I recommend you all to go read. And Anne will tell us a little bit more about her. Yeah, and without us being experts of the topics ourselves, we are not um, members of the LGBTQ community, community We thought it was just very important to raise this topic and to give um, people from the community a platform to speak about the experiences and um, what they have gone and are going through. And in our discussion with, with Julia, we covered an array of, of different topics, which include institutional ignorance and, and, and exclusion of LGBTQ members from sports. We're going to speak about the accessibility for, uh, to sports um, for trans people and as well as the differences for trans men and women um, to access and engage in sports. Yeah, and also um, I think these topics have been widely discussed around professional sports, uh, but we bring to you a fresh perspective from what happens really at the amateur and more local level. And I think that will make us and you realize a little bit more what is the everyday life of entering sports and being part of the LGBTQ plus community. So without further ado, uh, we welcome to you Julia Valentino, and I hope that you enjoy our second episode. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the interview section of the second episode of It's All Sport. We are joined now by Julia Valentino. Welcome to the studio, by the way. Hi, folks. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's not too bad. We'll have introduced your story a little bit, but it'd be nice to hear from you. Um, so just your story in a general sense, um, where you've come from, where you are now, uh, and your involvement in the Gaelic football community. Yeah, um, I'm uh, originally from Italy, from Rome, and I moved to Ireland uh, like four years ago. Then I started playing uh, contact rugby in Ireland and I eventually quit following an injury 
Firstly, you played rugby in Ireland? Yeah, yeah I never played uh, rugby in Italy. In Italy, okay. Uh, there are two basic reasons. The first one is that the movement is not as big as it is in Ireland. Yeah, it's, so it's, more, not, it's yeah. not even easy to find a club that is like near, uh, nearby your place that you can actually go to training every, every week. Uh, the, the women movement is even smaller. Yeah. And there is no uh, regulation for uh, trans people. Yeah. And also, by the time I was like eligible on paper to play uh, in women category, I left the country. Okay. So I was never in a position in my country to play in the women, women category, mm-hmm. even in the case that they would offer me like a legal slot to want to do so. Okay. Mm. I see. Well, uh, you're going to have to inform us a little bit here, and also our audience at home, what exactly is Gaelic football? <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, I actually had to find it out myself. <laughs> I thought it didn't exist, then I found out recently that there is a club in Rome. But really? In Rome? Yeah, wow, yeah, in Rome? Yeah, I found wow. out that there is a club in Rome, but I, I never heard of them when I was there, because I didn't know what foot, uh, Gaelic football is. Mm-hmm. So, um, Gaelic football... To give a rough understanding of the game is like a mixture of skills from basketball, soccer, handball, and rugby. Mm-hmm. The pitch is similar size to a, a football pitch, slightly bigger. We have like a regular uh, football goal with the, the net mm-hmm. and the, the goalkeeper, but they have like post uh, going uh, upward, same as rugby. Wow. I don't know if anyone is, sim- is familiar with Australian football and mm-hmm. it's kind of re- uh, similar. Mm-hmm. Is it that you run three paces and you have to kick it up and then... Yeah, you yeah. can. if you want to keep running with the ball, you have to either bounce as you do in uh, uh, basketball. Basketball, mm-hmm. okay. Or there is another thing that is uh, called a solo, which basically you drop the ball and you kick it uh, for yourself. It's like yeah. a kick and catch back. Mm-hmm. And those two features allow to uh, allow you to progress with the ball. It's an incredibly like mixed sport, well, isn't it? It's, it's there the, is a lot the, going on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Is it very to its core, very traditional, like very ancient, very historic? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't really have a picture on the history of the game itself, yeah. but it's, I would say it's the most Irish thing that I have ever uh, <laughs> yeah. got to know. Encountered. <laughs> it's like. And is it very, very popular therefore? Oh in, yeah, absolutely. Irish people are crazy about Gaelic sport. Right. There is football, there is hurling, which is another game. Uh, there is uh, ladies football and there is camogie, which is the women version of hurling because it has slightly different rules. Okay. But they are the, the two main games for both of the categories. And then there is another game called the Rounder, but I don't think they play competition uh, on mm. that game. I love Rounders. Yeah, it's, rounders. Like, it's like baseball. But it's like baseball exactly. from, uh, really from British. the island. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very popular in Ireland as well, but there are not uh, like actual leagues. Yeah, I understand. Um, so how has your experience in Gaelic football uh, impacted your overall sense of identity and self-confidence as a transgender woman? Well, uh, when I started first, of course, I didn't know anything about the game, so I had like to really commit to it. I found a very nice team, an inclusive team, which has like the scope, the vision of promoting inclusion. Mm. Because to give you a bit of context, Gaelic football is incredibly rooted in the comuni- community. People start playing when they are so young. People start playing, do playing in school, but they also play in like parish. Mm-hmm. Most of the team are named after some saints because they are yeah. actually from parish. Mm-hmm. 
and then they they grow if they improve the level they can play for the the village for the city for the county and the most important competition is the inter-county well when all the senior team from the the county of both uh, republic and or northern ireland play each other in this league every year mm-hmm. so the connection with the community starts from very young age and grows up throughout uh, the entire life of Irish people. When they stop playing, they may uh, be involved in coaching or managing teams or anyway, they are supporter. I see every um, every week people going to Croke Park, which is the stadium where the inter-county uh, is played, especially on the final stages in Dublin. They come to Dublin from anywhere in the county, in the country mm-hmm. and with families like big groups of, of people traveling to Dublin and it's very friendly. I've never mm. seen people like bitching or fighting or anyway, mm. you see them on the, on the tram traveling together to the stadium is a community thing that is kind of, is Ireland. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's really Irish culture. They have their own, yeah. most of the time they speak Irish during, uh, Gaelic, official Gaelic games, uh, mm-hmm. things, ceremonies or promotion or whatever. Yeah. At least there is double language. A lot of technical terminology um, may uh, be uh, issued in Irish. Mm-hmm. So it's really something that represents the people of Ireland. And I actually started playing Gaelic because I wanted to get to know more and better local culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said you decided to come to rugby first and then get football after. Is there something special about a team setting that you think is like structurally inclusive, you know, like compared to an individual sport? Do you think it's a more comfortable area for trans athletes it can be much more inclusive and it mm. can be much more dangerous and safe and exclusive it depends on where you happen to to join mm. I see. so i wouldn't say that my experience would be as nice as it is uh, in any other team mm-hmm. i may find the good and the bad everywhere and especially in let's call them like regular team team that not uh, promote them as a, uh, explicitly inclusive teams. Mm-hmm. There is, there are still uh, huge barriers for people uh, about coming out as queer people to different extent, gay people, trans people, bisexual people, non-binary people. Mm. It's not easy. And every time there is like an high-handed lead, like I wouldn't say professional because they don't take any money, <laughs> but you know, people playing the the top, uh, the top level, level. Comp- yeah. high competitive level. Yeah, yeah. intercount is. If any of them come out, is a huge uh, news, mm-hmm. and we are still on that uh, early stage in this part. Okay, mm-hmm. I see. You're gonna have to help me with the pronunciation of the team that you play for. Nagaela <laughs> <laughs> Raka. The uh, yeah, the name of the team is Nagaela Raka. Right, okay. And it's a inclusive team. Yes, yes. Yeah. They absolutely uh, promote themselves as, an in- as a team that is inclusive for everyone. Mm-hmm. But they play in competitive leagues? Yes. yes. In the, we play actually the lowest division mm-hmm. of the official league uh, issued by the, the Ladies Gaelic Football Federation. It's important that it is competitive. Yes, know, that, yeah. yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Because I think it adds and adds an element to a game that's very different to just playing amateur. You know, and there is also legitimacy. Yeah, exactly. There is also uh, validation and legitimacy because everyone can play in the park with friends, Mm -hmm. but you always feel that you play in the park only in the park because you are not allowed to play Mm. anywhere else. 
if you have the chance to play a regular league, you may start seeing yourself as just a regular player yeah. as mm -hmm. anyone else in the league. Well, what is um, the relationship between your club and the Irish Gaelic uh, Federation? I would say it's positive. Positive. Because this team started, I, I believe, in 2021. Yeah. F they, they like to say that it started from a tweet because Carl, who was the, who is the person who started this thing and mm -hmm. he was our chairperson uh, last year, put on a Twitter and people started replying and they wanted to, to join, to, uh, to be part of it. And it, in, uh, it grew uh, up quite quickly they immediately started advertising themselves as an inclusive team. Mm -hmm. And the federation, I was told that was very collaborative in facilitating this team, um, like settling mm -hmm. and starting uh, the, the competitive uh, activities. So I would say that the, the, both GAA, which is the federation that represents men Gaelic football, yes. and mm -hmm. ladies Gaelic football federation, LGFA, both helped our um, club. Mm. After now, uh, on an Indian side, I can say that LGFA is keep being collaborative and promoting inclusion and keeping in, uh, inclusion as a core value yeah. for mm -hmm. them. Because actually the policy that they created a few months ago that officially let trans women play Gaelic football, uh, ladies Gaelic football, is something new. Well, I was it wasn't there before. I was going to say, because we've interviewed before, just for listeners, um, yeah. and, and in the interview before, you mentioned that you didn't like the fact that it was just a loophole that you'd found in the system, but they've actually created a, a legitimate rule for inclusion. Yes. That's brilliant. Yes. Yeah. Basically, last year I played, but there wasn't like an official piece of paper. In, um, in the game laws, mm -hmm. there was no mention of trans athlete, which means that trans athletes weren't excluded. But there, was a, there wasn't any specific mention about the inclusion. Now, uh, since, some, since some incident happened last summer, they eventually developed a policy. And now trans women uh, are officially entitled to play Gaelic football, uh, given the approval of uh, an application form. Wow, that's brilliant. We'll move uh, towards kind of like the, the, the grander narratives, I guess, of um, trans athletes, if, if you're okay with that. Um, why do you think the narrative against trans people competing in like ultra competitive sports is resonating so strongly? Do do you think it's 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 because of a fundamental misunderstanding of trans athletes, or do you think there's an inherent sexism that they think that they need to protect female sports? There are a couple of factors. Hmm. The word misunderstanding, I find it funny because <laughs> if you misunderstand something it means that you at least try to understand it and eventually it. got it wrong. Mm. But in most of the cases, it's pure ignorance. Mm. Yeah. It's not even a misunderstanding. There is sexism. And when I say that, I say that because not only because of what, uh, what is about transgender participation, but because there are several issues in, uh, in women's sport management in general across different sports and just talking about the experience of cisgender women playing sport, eventually at a um, high level, they don't get money, logistics is poor, mm -hmm. uh, they don't get support, they don't often don't get, don't get like um, broadcasted. So mm -hmm. there are quite a few issues they play on pitches that are not always up to standard in, uh, for their, 
like on demand counterpart at the same level. Mm -hmm. So there are quite a few issues and more often than not, women's sport is uh, managed by men. Mm -hmm. There is little representation of women in sport management at high level overall, as well as, as in any other uh, field, industries. So there is, of course, a, a bit, quite a lot of men's playing. Mm. There are those, those, those men that basically want to protect women's sport, but Through they never ask it. Actually, mm -hmm. they never ask it women, what would you mean for a woman, even for a cisgender woman, to protect and to improve women's sport? I asked you before, actually, it was on this topic, that you thought that sports was invented to match a binary society and that now in a society where we've moved beyond this, it needs to match that inclusion. Do you think that sport at the moment continues to reinforce these binary gender stereotypes? Yes and no. Mm, no, because we see some, some progression somewhere. Yes, because this progression is yet binary. I mean, a policy that allows trans transgender women to participate in a given game or transgender men to participate uh, in their category in the same game still divide people in those two categories. Unfortunately, is not there is no easy answer to that question. I would say the entire concept uh, and industry of sports should be revised. Mm -hmm. Someone uh, bring it up that it may mean um, like erasing records and things like that. Cared. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we can restart from scratch. And what people did uh, in the past will stay there. And mm -hmm. actually, I don't see the the obsession for records, uh, competition, trophies. The fact that we that I am competing and I like uh, a league when they uh, provide us with fixture doesn't mean that I really mind competition. Competition mm -hmm. is just a way to make it more exciting and to to know uh, new people. Uh, and we can win, we can lose. Win. It, to me, it doesn't really matter. Of course, we celebrate if we win some silver, but if we progress to the next division, and we are sorry if we don't. But yet, after the game, we go for a, for a pint, regardless of the <laughs> score. <And> of course. <laughs> I'm not obsessed with that. So the thing about preserving what has been uh, written so far is not really a topic to me. Mm -hmm. I believe that inclusion is so important and I believe that the right way to include everyone is still far from being found mm -hmm. because we are looking for answer mm. and this is already a very optimistic stretch <laughs> because most of the time we are not. People are not, yeah, yeah really. But mm. even when they are, they are looking for answer in a very limited and narrow um, Hang, uh, angle and yeah. frame. Mm -hmm. So there is so much more to, to expand and to explore. There is a lot of work to do. And I believe that this like early, even narrow exploration is functional to find and eventually develop something bigger and broader mm -hmm. that may arrive in a couple of years, decades, who knows. But yeah, I, I strongly believe that sport since it, it is dramatically important for people, uh, both physical and mental health, should prioritize inclusion and should prioritize extending this benefit to as many people as possible. You've, you've talked about representation in sports. 
Um, and as with pretty much any endeavor in, in social life, representation requires a path of fighting, of getting to that position. Um, I have two questions. Um, where do you see uh, transgender men and women being represented in sports in the future? And what for you um, is like the main um, drivers towards this path? The path for trans men and trans women is very different. Uh, if trans women are, when they are allowed to join, they are required to provide like uh, medical um, compliance or things like that. For trans men, most of the time they're only required to provide like um, a paper where they uh, state that they take the risk to play with people who are supposed allegedly uh, allegedly to be stronger than them. Right. So there's already a sexist approach. Yeah, because basically men are not trans men are not seen as a real man. Hmm. If you want to to play with the real guy feel free to go, but if you get hurt, it's your problem. Okay, That's well, pretty well. much the approach about trans men that I find personally disgusting. Yeah. Is less controversial, uh, I mean, is less opposed. Hmm. I, Than the other way around. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't know, there, there may be many social uh, readings to this thing, but it's a fact that the participation of trans men in yeah. men's sport is less opposed it doesn't mean at all that trans men feel more comfortable joining a men team. Yeah. Because social opposition to this thing doesn't automatically imply that other players and changing room staff are going smoothly for those people. Recently, uh, World Athletics, uh, the Athletics Global Governing Body, voted to ban transgender women who went through male puberty from competing in women's events, citing a need to protect the female category. Uh, how does this make you feel as a woman? Terrible. But I can I I find I think that I find fun is that those rules that are meant to, to target trans women are also affecting cisgender women. Yeah. And more often than not, cisgender women affected by uh, re regulation around hormones hormone levels and things like that are black. Mm -hmm. It's not, only, it's not only transphobic, it's not only sexist, it's also racist. Casta Semenya. Yeah, and mm -hmm. she's not the only one. Mm -hmm. And there is another sprinter from, I don't know, it's from Namibia, I don't know the name. And there is also, it happened during the, the African Cup uh, football a couple of years ago that uh, a striker from one of the national team was, I think, excluded from the competition. And all those women are black. Wow. So basically, they are making, they are protecting white women's part. It's great. It's, it's just if your testosterone levels are higher, but then you, I mean, you made the case last time that we were in an interview that Michael Phelps is a genetic freak compared to yeah. uh, cis men, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it really is. Also, you, let's take away, let's take out, take out transgender woman from the conversation. Caster mm. Semeni is a cisgender woman. Her mm -hmm. body naturally produced that level of testosterone. It's just crazy to think to change the natural body of an athlete because this athlete is too strong. It never happened before. And actually it's not happening in any men uh, category in any game. So the women category is by default seen as like a B category where 
players, even the strongest, even elite players, will never be able to hit the highest standard that is the one hit by men. So they are trying to kind of regulate the, I don't know, the, the runner-up. I don't know. I don't know how to say. It's, yeah. just, <laughs> it's just crazy. Because if you are too strong to be a man, there is not like a Superman category. <laughs> no, no, but if, if you are too strong to be a woman, yeah. for whatever crazy shit those things can, uh, <laughs> can mean, you are excluded. Yeah. And we are talking about cisgender people. Mm -hmm. So we are talking about the variety of performance that nature offers in a game, in a category, without any medical intervention, without any other situation. Mm -hmm. It must be accepted. I, when I play, I play with uh, women that are taller, shorter, slimmer, bigger, uh, stronger, weaker, faster or slower, more clever, whatever. Mm -hmm. There is, when you have 30 people running on a, on, a, on, a, on a field, there is so much going on. Everyone is bringing a different skill set. And even two people of the same, two cisgender, sorry, cisgender people of the same size and shape are offering themselves two different skill set. Mm -hmm. So there is already a huge range of performances happening in that situation. Mm -hmm. Since those people are cisgender, this range is accepted. And in the case of Caster Semeni, it's not. And she is cisgender. When you bring transgender people to the game, if what you previously accepted within cisgender people can vary from 10 to 1,000, if what the, trans the transgender person brings is no lower than 10 and no higher than 2,000, is a value that is already acknowledged and accepted to be there. Mm -hmm. So we are talking about nothing. Yeah other than the total refuse to investigate trans um, athletes' bodies and performances. So no one knows what we really bring to the game. I am they, sure that they... we bring something that is already accepted to be there from other people, but yet there is a, a strong uh, pushback because, because of the nature of this society. Also, those people, the kind of pushback, they, they don't even um, engage in a conversation. No, they don't. Exactly. They, they, just, they, they justify their previous beliefs through different mediums, don't they? Unfortunately, things are getting even worse because mm -hmm. especially sport bodies, uh, top-level sport bodies, they have money. Yeah. They have resources, yeah. like academic resources, medical resources, financial resources. And they are able to produce a study that is able to demonstrate their belief, even if it is fake or if it is strongly biased. Mm. And they have the means to promote this study, to give this study mm. such a visibility that it will be like seen as a truth, especially from people who are already expecting that sort of outcome, yeah. the so-called confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, the, you've got to imagine that the reason they wouldn't do it is because it would cost a lot of money to try and split these divisions up, you know? Like, they've already got this beautiful project that they've got, which is male competition, female competition. They're easy to sell, easy to navigate. They don't want to create a new competition because it means a lot of work on their end, you know? I don't think anyone ever uh, thought about that. 
In my opinion, the, the problem is different. The problem is that the existence, existence of trans people is strongly debated in society mm. in mm. different uh, fields. Mm. And we are gradually getting there. Of course, things today are much better than 20, 30, 50 years ago. Yeah. But there is a lot of work to do. And sporting bodies are doing politics. Yeah. So it's much easier investing in something that brings you consensus and save your chair than mm. spending a lot of money troubling your own life to eventually lose your role. Mm -hmm. Because it's quite clear that if you talk to people... There are many people that know nothing about it, but still want to have a saying. And mm. their two cents, more often than not, say that we shouldn't be there. Especially from people who have no clue of what they're talking about. Mm. Um, I had a few more, which were a bit more focused on um, sort of the nationality perspective. Um, and uh, asking you, so you're, you're from Italy, uh, you're from Rome. Um, and now you live in uh, Ireland, and if you see a sort of um, difference in the society you live in, both in Italy and both in Ireland, um, regarding transgender women's rights? Uh, so, yes. Um, but both in, Dub in Dublin, yeah. I live, uh, I feel better than in Rome. Okay. Mm, there is a huge uh, transphobic uh, wave arising across the uh, across the world not the only world, europe yeah. in the last 20 years probably 10 years with like actual government issuing anti-trans bills or anti-gay bills or any kind of anti-lgbt rhetoric uh, it happened in ireland it happened in italy it happened everywhere so given to the proportion of this problem i would say in ireland i feel much better than in rome even now that things are getting a bit rougher pretty much everywhere. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and especially when it comes to... Let's split the issue into, in, uh, into uh, branches. One is civil society. Yeah. Civil society in Ireland is 200% better than in Italy. Yeah. In Italy, I may not even find a job. Mm -hmm. Or I'm, I may have many different problems that have nothing to do with my personal safety. I'm talking about people who are want to have a saying, but they will never think of like physically attacking you. Mm. Like pretty much like common bias and prejudice. Yeah, for for, for job, for, yeah, for normal yeah, well, life. Normal, yes, exactly, yeah. the daily life. And Ireland is incredibly better than Italy about that. When it comes to non-civil society, Mm. You can find this issue everywhere. So you can be attacked in Dublin, in Rome, in London, in Oslo, in New York, or yeah. in. It's institutional. Yeah, exactly. So, I, I mean, I complain about it because sometimes I feel like I feel not safe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Especially going to matches when you know there are other clubs, other supporters, and you never know who who you are going to meet. Mm -hmm. More often than not, they are lovely people. Sometimes it can be rough, but. No place is perfect. It's definitely becoming a kind of little toy that's being played by different political sides, you know, different battles. I mean, even in America at the moment, it's become more stigmatised. I mean, I know that a lot of 
le- I mean, usually Republican leaning states have started trying to ban uh, transgender sports, even in like the children level. You know, like like before they've even gone through puberty, which is crazy. Um, and like the, the the level of inclusion that you can get from sport and the benefits it can give to you at that level is is, is really sad to see. I th- yeah, is is very bad. It's dramatic because actually this repression on people identity uh, personality and rights is affecting people mental health but not only to the extent that people need to go to therapy is a real factor in suicidal rate so people actually enforcing anti-lgbt politics they are responsible for people taking their lives there is no other way to say that and they can't just brush their hands. Um, how can people support your cause here? Is there, is there a team that you, in London that you could shout out or is there any other way that in Dublin that you could talk Because our, our audience is, is, is reasonably all over. In Gaelic football, I would say now that we have a regulation for, for trans women, I would love to have a regulation for trans men. Talking about inclusion of trans people overall, uh, in rugby we don't have it. Actually, all started in 2019, 2020, when World Rugby uh, banned trans women from elite rugby. Yeah. And then National uh, Rugby Union just tagged along. And we are still um, at that level. I think that communication, connection, social promotion, but not promotion like a petition, talk to your friends. Mm-hmm. We have to change the, not to change, we have to amplify the voice of, of this community because I am sure that when it comes to numbers, there are so many people that are not speaking up. Mm-hmm. And a few haters are much louder than plenty of supporters. Mm-hmm. So I know that I'm saying the, the usual things, like we have to come together, we have to stay stronger, to support each other, all those kind of things. Politically wise, I believe that it's important to give visibility staging protests or bringing signs to, to matches. But we have to, to do it from a very early stage. Mm-hmm. Because you can't even Im- tolerate that people start playing sport and at some point they find their, their true self and they are excluded from what they did for years, from what they love. It it has and also it's not possible to promote it from a high level because those people are from somewhere. So you can't just throw trans people in a little game. It's not happening. I tell you, it's not happening. There are no. There is also no record, so no one knows officially how many trans people are competing at high level and what they are doing. But. It's like a generational change. You start from the lower level and when, as the time uh, goes by, these people will grow up and will become the elite player of tomorrow and they eventually will offer more representation. Mm-hmm. You can't change the representation at high level without changing what will feed that mm-hmm. demographic in uh, over the, uh, the coming years. So. It has to start from from school, from kids, and I don't know how, uh, what else to say because <laughs> the culture has to change slowly. Yeah, and, and, and as any other 
cultural aspect that uh, has to change. It takes time. It takes like a slow shift. It's not an overnight change. And you, you can't even just as enforce it with a piece of paper because law is not enough to change people's mind. Mm-hmm. Now that I have a policy that entitled me to play, it doesn't mean that I feel any safer. I, I know that I can't be uh, excluded from the game and my team can't be disqualified for fielding me. It doesn't, it doesn't change the way I feel when I go or, or, li- or leave a ground. So it's a cultural sh- shift. And of course, uh, science help, uh, regulations help, but there is a lot of work to do in the community. To, with the people that will actually be af- affected by anything that happens in society, the, the receiver of regulation, of communication, of of uh, participation, of whatever else. So you can't just enforce things on people. I don't believe in it. No. And if you could describe uh, what you've learned from the Gaelic football community. First of all, I'm learning something about Irish culture that I, I find incredibly important when you live in a place that is not your, uh, the place you are born to learn how local people live, what's their uh, history and folklore. This is very... It makes me feel a bit more connected to the place that I decide to live in. Um, I learned the laws <laughs> because I didn't know, didn't even know the rules when I started. <laughs> and I know, I learned that actually changes can happen. Mm. And I feel honored and privileged of being like the face that led to this change. And I feel blessed to have found this team that supported me and we together achieve to eventually have a, a real policy from the Federation. We actually wrote a page of history. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, thank you very much for coming in today. It's been fantastic. It's been amazing and I hope you write many more pages of history. <laughs> I hope I will uh, write good ones. <laughs> <laughs>
without involving women into the, the conversation. And I think that it's definitely a responsibility for, for our generation to have more considerate judgment and to be more sensible in our approach when it comes to issues like that. Yeah, I think after all, uh, we need to leverage and extend the positive impact sports can have, both on mental and physical, onto as many people as possible and to make it a universal and accessible tool. Yeah, totally. One thing I just wanted to highlight, though, is that although we did speak a lot about um, issues of, for instance, accessibility and, and, and issues of acceptance, uh, after all, Julia's story is a story of success, right? Uh, despite all the obstacles she had to to overcome, she now plays in a team where she feels safe and, and accepted, and in a league that at least officially welcomes trans, pe trans people um, into the community. So it is a story of success and is something very, very inspiring and a sign for people who face these problems that there's uh, reason to believe and, and to carry on. Yeah, and I'd also like to highlight um, Julia's bravery and courage to come onto the podcast and share her story, a very personal story indeed. Um, and I think that to wrap up this conclusive part of the episode, um, I'd like to hear a key takeaway from Arne on the interview. Yeah, sure. I think um, my key takeaway of this episode was that um, although we may not even be aware consciously that sports are still binary, right? We still compete in um, the male and the female category without questioning or, or indeed challenging that. And um, going forward, I believe that we need to, to strive for more uh, representation in sports, in sportive institutions. And we have to create um, innovative solutions, creative solutions to somehow accommodate everybody's needs and to ensure that uh, inclusivity is, is given in all parts of sports. So that is really my key, key takeaway. How about you, Alex? I think my key takeaway is the importance of spaces when one tries to find solutions to exclusion. And I think Julie's anecdote of having to play in a park because she was excluded from um, an official competition or uh, a regular pitch uh, made me understand that, you know, there, there are certain spaces in our day-to-day -day life where we can um, sort of exercise our discomfort with the current rules, the current institutions. And yeah, overall spaces are an essential part of life and an essential way of creating little revolutions in old institutions. So thank you very, very much for coming here and listening to us on the second episode of the It's Hope Sports podcast. We wish you a very good month and see you next month.